Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Last week in the first servant song of Isaiah in Isaiah 42, God invited us into His delight in Jesus Christ. The delight that He feels when He contemplates the servant that He will send into the world. This morning we're going to be looking at the second of the four servant songs. This one is found in Isaiah 49, verses 1-6. through And if last time God invited us into His delight, this morning in Isaiah 49 we will be invited into Christ's purpose into His purpose, the sense of purpose that we share with Him. So let's take a look at our text, Isaiah 49, verses 1-6. through Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand He hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's the word of the Lord. First love always leads to disappointment. First love always has as its fruit disappointment. If you go back in time, the first time you ever fell in love, you didn't realize it, but disappointment was looming. Once upon a time, there was a young woman for the purposes of argument, we'll call her Lori. She had always dreamed of love, always dreamed of finding a man who would be her all in all. And when she fell in love and she found him, she expected things to go a certain way. She expected that this man that she loved would love her as much as she loved him, that he would treat her as she deserved to be treated, that he would give her all of the things that her heart longed for, and that in that love she would find contentment and fulfillment and peace. Um, It didn't work out that way. In that young love, and and in every young love, eventually disappointment set in. It turns out that the man she loved didn't always love her perfectly, didn't always give her the things that she wanted or deserved. And that in that love, the one thing she didn't find and has not yet found is peace and fulfillment. And we never do. We enter into love with all of these expectations, and the certainty is that it'll lead to disappointment. But if you've been there before, you know that 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 disappointment has a certain character to it. And it's not such a bad thing, actually. 
first love does lead to disappointment, but the problem isn't with the love. The problem is with us. It has to do with the immaturity, with the expectations that we entered into with it, as I've told her again and again. It has to do with the way that we wanted something without actually knowing what it was we wanted. We longed for it without knowing what it was. And so that process of disappointment is actually necessary if we're going to come to understand the love for what it really is and for what it really gives. That's true, I think, in all human love, including the love that we have for the religion of Scripture. When you come to the faith that you find in the Bible, your first love, your first enthusiasm leads you to imagine that, that the gospel is meeting you exactly where you're at, that it shares your view of reality, that it will satisfy all of the longings you now have, that the gospel will give you everything you think you deserve, and that in Christ you will find a sense of contentment and fulfillment and spiritual peace. And then reality sets in. And then you, you mature in faith a little bit. And with that reality, you realize that those expectations are not going to be met. And the deeper you dig, the more you discover about the Christian faith, the more you understand about the Bible, and what the gospel is really saying, the more you realize that, that it's not going to give you all the things that you want. It's not going to give you all the things you think you deserve. And it's not always going to lead you to peace and contentment. In fact, sometimes it's going to drag you into conflict that you never wanted. And so disappointment results. If I want to try to trace two uh, lines of disappointments that most of us as Christians will experience, the two lines of disappointment would be something like this, the line of unfairness and the line of unfulfillment. The sense in which as we dig into Scripture and we understand what it is that God is actually saying, it starts feeling a little unfair to us, this truth that we've been given. And also, as we dig into it and understand it more fully, it starts to look a little more unfulfilling than we expected it to be. When we imagine what the benefits of religion are, uh, what, what spiritual people enjoy in this life, we tend to think of, of wisdom and, and peace and contentment and a kind of uh, ethereal harmony. And as we dig into Scripture, we begin to realize that's not what God is offering us in this life. Unfairness and unfulfillment. The unfairness, I think, happens on two levels. One of them is uh, what you might think of as like a theological level. Right? You dig into the Bible and you start to realize, wow, this Christianity, it's making some bold claims for itself. God isn't saying, my son Jesus Christ is one of the, the many awesome ways in which you can reach me. Instead, He's saying, no, Christ is the only way, the only name under heaven by which you can be saved. It's a very exclusive claim, and it leads to all kinds of problems for us because God doesn't reveal himself equally to everyone. You only have to look at Old Testament history to realize he had a covenant people he revealed himself to and you, if you happen to be born in Egypt or Anatolia 
or, or somewhere even farther away than that, God wasn't speaking to you the way He was to Israel. It doesn't seem fair. And then you dig in even deeper and you discover the thing that, that St. Augustine realized, that not only does God issue the commands, but it's necessary in order for us to obey them for God to give us the gift of grace, which would allow us to do what He commands us to do, which seems even more inequitable. But the unfairness also strikes us in a different way, personal, existential. Um, we don't get treated the way we want to be treated. We surrender our lives to Christ, we follow Christ, and bad things happen to us. You expect that by believing the right thing, the right things will start happening to you, and it doesn't happen. You serve faithfully, and you're not rewarded. Not only are you not rewarded, but sometimes it's as if you're punished. And the more you give, the more God seems to expect, and and the results, they never come. It doesn't seem fair. Especially when you see people who, who don't love Him as much and don't sacrifice as much and don't serve Him as much, and yet He showers results and blessings on them as if He's really confused about who His real fans are. When we accuse God of being unfair, God makes it worse with the way He answers us. Because when you go in Scripture to the book of Job, for example, or the book of Romans, and people bring to God this concern, it doesn't really look like you're, you're being fair. God does not explain Himself. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't acknowledge your concerns. You're right to feel this way, but let me explain to you. Oh no, it's not that way. Instead, God does the thing that parents do to children that we're told you shouldn't do. He just says, who are you to ask? Who are you to ask? Remind me again who you are. To judge me. You're, you're saying that my ways are not right. You're saying that my ways are inequitable. That there's something wrong with the way I do things. Remind me again where you get the standing to ask such questions. It's an argument from authority, which is a logical fallacy. And yet this is what he does. He reminds us who we are. You think you're a judge. You think you're an attorney. But you're actually the accused. You're actually guilty. You stand in a different relationship to God than you imagine when you think that you can judge His actions. But the thing to realize is that when God answers this way, He's not dodging the question. He's not trying to get out of it because He just doesn't have a better answer. This is the best answer to the question. Because in in answering it this way, He's reminding us what we are. He is bringing us back to reality. He's reminding you that as you stand in relation to Him, you are a sinner, guilty in need of His grace. Not a judge to stand in judgment over His actions. And when you realize that, you begin to think, well, thank goodness He's not that fair. Because if we did get what we deserve, none of us would like it. Because it is condemnation and wrath. When we complain that the Christian life is unfulfilling, we reveal something in the complaint about ourselves. We reveal this, that that we've forgotten what it's all about. We've not only lost touch with who and what we are, but we've forgotten what this calling was all about. We're disappointed that it's unfulfilling, 
which suggests that we thought fulfillment was what it was about. That what Christ had called us to be in this life was, was content and peaceful and fulfilled people. But it was actually something different than that that you were called to when you were called to Christ. You were called to a life of self-denial. The kind of life that Christ lived. That's what you were called to. Our purpose, in other words, is not self-fulfillment. Our purpose is to glorify God. To bring glory to God. Think about it this way. The kind of life that you long for, and the kind of life that I long for, um, it's a life of comfort, a life of contentment, a life of plenty and abundance. My ideal would be something like I, I sit on a really comfortable couch and things are brought to me. And if I get bored, entertainment is presented before me and all of my needs are met, preferably before I feel them, so that I never even have that, that twinge of discontent. That's the ideal existence for me. And for most of us, I think it's something like that. Um, it's the way that animals are prepared for slaughter. The kind of life that we aspire to is the kind of life we give to things we intend to eat. The kind of comforts we want and assurances and peace that we want. And this is the stuff that we give to the animals that are meant to be killed. That's not your calling. That is not what you've been called to in this life. To be fattened up and slaughtered. You have a different purpose. A different calling. And so in Isaiah 49... Something interesting happens. In the first servant song, we heard about the servant. In this second song, the servant speaks. The servant speaks to us. And later on, we'll see not only does he speak to us, he speaks for us. So he begins by getting our attention. Listen to me, O coastlands, he says. And remember the coastlands that, that we encountered at the, at the end of the last song, the coastlands it's a reference to the scattered people of humanity. The original coastland people were the, the descendants of Noah who, who dispersed throughout the earth to populate it. So the coastland peoples are the peoples that Matthew translates as Gentiles. Right? It's, it's the, the great human diaspora. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. This is the servant Christ speaking. It's not anachronistic to say it is Christ speaking. Christ, as, as perhaps you know, is the Greek version of the Hebrew title Messiah. So when we talk about the Messiah speaking in the Old Testament, this is Christ Speaking to us. He's addressing us. And he speaks about his sense of purpose here. And it goes way back. But he says, the Lord called me from the womb. When people speak this way, when David talks this way, he's talking about the idea that, that God's relation with him, it goes back like to the beginning of his history. Like to say that something was true from the womb is to say that it was true from the beginning. From the very beginning, he called me. Not in the midst of life. Not when he looked down and said, well, you know, this guy, Jesus, he seems pretty good. I think I'll make him the son of God. No. 
from the very beginning, this is true. This calling is on his life from the start, from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. And this idea of naming is significant, going back all the way to the power that that God delegated to Adam to name the animals, because the giving of the name is an exercise of authority. It defines. It's as if what he's saying here is from the beginning I had a purpose. God gave me that purpose in naming me. And then he compares himself to weapons. A sharp sword. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. It's interesting to see these are weapons of war, but used in a different way. It's not he gave me a sword or made me into a sharp sword. He made my mouth a sharp sword. That's a significant way of speaking when you're speaking about the Messiah. Because it connects the idea of the Word as the Son of God and the Word as the Scripture inspired by God. In the beginning of the book of Revelation, there is this vision of Christ, the Son of Man. And as He's described in Revelation chapter 1, we're told from His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 talks about Scripture and the power of Scripture to cut to the heart of things. He says it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So here, Christ as the Word is being proclaimed. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. An instrument, yes. An instrument of conflict, yes. But a Word. A Word that cuts to the heart of things. A Word that has power. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. He made me a polished arrow. A polished arrow. An arrow made carefully, polished up, burnished, kept in the quiver, ready to be fired into the world, shot out into the world. These are instruments that serve a purpose. The sword serves a purpose. The arrow serves a purpose. And in identifying with these things, Christ identifies with the work that He's been given to to do in this world. He sent me into the world to speak the truth. The truth that cuts to the very heart of things. He sent me into the world as his polished arrow to fly to the target with accuracy when called upon. And invites us to see in his purpose a reflection of our purpose as well. As Jesus speaks of his sense of purpose, he also speaks of the purpose of those who are in him. He is a polished arrow in the quiver of the Lord. And you are a polished arrow for the Lord as well. You have a purpose. And that purpose, in order to be fulfilled, will require self-sacrifice. It requires us to die to self. To die, so to speak, to fairness, to fulfillment, to getting what we want in this life. Because it requires of us that we see this life in an entirely different way. That we stand in a different place when we look at it and ask ourselves what it's all about. Socrates famously said that that the unexamined life is not worth living. So those of you who are not philosophers, you might as well just die now. Your life is not worth living. And if you're of a philosophical bent, that rings true. 
feels right. There are certain lives that we imagine are just not worth living. When we look at the lives of people who've experienced a lot of unfairness, a lot of injustice, whose, whose desires have been thwarted and met and, and not met, uh, that just seems like a tragedy. A life of unfairness, that's a tragedy. A life of unfairness, that's, that's a waste. An unfulfilled life, a life full of dreams and ambitions, and the person who had them didn't realize them but had to give them up, that's a tragedy. That's a waste. What I'm saying to you is this, that an unfair life is not a tragedy. That an unfair life is not a waste. That an unfulfilled life is not a tragedy. And an unfulfilled life is not a waste because life wasn't about those things to begin with. The way we judge the worth of life needs to change. God speaks to Christ here about His purpose. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. You are my servant in whom I will be glorified. And you may have in your Bible a note at the bottom on that word, will be glorified, saying, another way to think of it is, in whom I will display my beauty. In whom I will display my beauty. When he says, you are my servant Israel, he does something interesting. He addresses the servant, but addresses the, the people through the servant. Because the servant is the head. He is the representative of the people. So as he speaks to Christ, he speaks to us through Christ. You are my servants in whom I will be glorified. Christ is the head of the church, Israel. God will be glorified in Christ. God will be glorified also in the church, in the people of Christ. In Psalm 50, psalmist writes, attributing these words to the Lord Himself, I will deliver you and you shall glorify Me. That's your purpose. If we are polished arrows, the target that we fly to is the glory of God. We think that that fulfillment is the goal, but in fact, our purpose is to bring glory to Him, to reveal, to declare His beauty is what we're here for. And the problem is, it's hard to see sometimes how the lives that we lead and the things that happen to us can possibly glorify God. I think if you've suffered, if the people you love have suffered, you look at that suffering and it, you ask yourself, like, how does that suffering glorify God? How could that possibly declare the beauty of God? Doesn't it actually say something different? Just the opposite. But when we ask the question that way, we're asking it the wrong way. We need to rephrase the question slightly. The real question is this. How can my faithfulness despite suffering glorify God? How can my faithfulness despite the suffering glorify God? The suffering is the context. The faithfulness is the arrow. How does the faithfulness display the beauty of God? If you see it that way, the question becomes 
clearer. The answer becomes clearer. If you've ever read uh, Wuthering Heights, first of all, if you've read Wuthering Heights on behalf of English majors everywhere, I apologize to you. But secondly, there's a moment in Wuthering Heights that's actually very illustrative of this point. There's a young man, Heathcliff, who's in love with Kathy, but the family doesn't approve and they're separated. Uh, there's a class difference problem. And so Heathcliff has to leave to run away. And in the interim, he makes his fortune and then he comes back for his revenge and to be united with the one that he loves. And so he comes back and, and there's a lot of angst associated with this. But there's a moment after his return where he says something really telling. Because when he comes back, it turns out the, the girl he loves hasn't waited for him. She's already married someone else. And so everything that he came back expecting has been dashed. But as he speaks to her about his absence and what he endured, he says these words, I've fought through a bitter life since I last heard your voice, and you must forgive me, for I struggled only for you. Everything that he endured, sufferings that made him into a harder person, maybe a less lovable person, he endured it all for her. This is not an ideal hero. Heathcliff isn't somebody that, that you would maybe aspire to be. But there's one thing about him that when you read the book, you will believe, and it is in his love. Because of what he endures for it. What he endures, what he suffers and sacrifices as a result of this love, it glorifies the love. It reveals its beauty. It reveals its truth. If we can see that in human love, if we can see that even in the imperfect examples that our lives represent, why is it so difficult to see when it comes to our faithfulness to God despite suffering? I said earlier, not only does Christ speak to us here, but He speaks for us on our behalf. And he voices a kind of complaint which is the, the, the thing that we've been exploring already. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. There's a moment in the life of Christ on the cross where you can see these kinds of uncertainties reflected in the sense that He feels for a moment abandoned. But also, there's a sense in which he speaks for all of us in speaking these words. Because I doubt there's anyone who's ever served Christ or sacrificed for Him who hasn't felt this same thing. That it was vain. That it was for nothing. I labored in vain. I spent my strength for nothing and vanity. When John Calvin writes about this, he's pretty high-minded. He says, the frustration of the Christian is you faithfully share the Gospel, but it doesn't change the world. You share the truth of Jesus Christ, but people don't believe it and are not transformed by it. And so it feels as if it was in vain. And I am sure for, for the best of us, that's exactly the point of our frustration. But for most of us, it might be something a little lower than that. It's not that we've served so faithfully and we've sacrificed so much and we've shared the Gospel with so many and are frustrated not to see the world transformed. It's more, I didn't get what I wanted. I don't feel 
happy. So it was all for nothing and all in vain. Because we're not always so noble. We believe, but we don't get what we deserve. We believe and we don't feel peace and fulfillment, so it seems like it was all in vain. And when you feel that way, the answer that's given here is the right answer to hold on to. Surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. The problem isn't that we expect there to be fairness and and justice. The problem isn't that we expect there to be fulfillment. The problem is we expect it too soon. We expect it to happen before Christ's kingdom is fully realized. It's not that we're wrong to want those things. We're right to want those things. We're wrong to think they're going to come to us so easily as a matter of course without sacrifice. Christ gives Himself to His purpose. One of the striking things about the life of Jesus is the extent to which the Son of God doesn't take anything like like on His own authority. He always defers back to the authority of the One who sent Him, to the Father who sent Him. If anybody had a right to make demands, it was Him. And yet, always, He refers back to the One who sent Him. He gives Himself up to the purpose that He was given. And when He does this, God becomes His strength. He does not seek His own glory. He seeks the glory of God. And so God does more through Him than was ever imagined. Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant, to bring Jacob back to Him, and that Israel might be gathered to Him, for I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength, He says... It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth, which is precisely the passage that Paul and Barnabas quote to justify their ministry to the Gentiles in the book of Acts. So here's Isaiah, this Old Testament prophet, speaking to Israel, saying, the Messiah who comes... Restoring us, our tribe, is not enough. It's too light a thing for Him. He will be a light to the nations. He will be a light to the end of the earth. If you're in Christ, then you too are a light. A light doesn't shine on itself. The light illuminates something else. It bears witness to something else. Allows something else to be seen more clearly. We have to stop chasing after what we think we deserve. We have to stop chasing after our own fulfillment. Pining away for peace and a happiness that will never be ours in this life. And instead glorify God. And glorify God. And glorify God. Years ago, I was talking to a friend who is a uh, a teacher in a classical Christian school who was really frustrated with Reformed kids. Young Presbyterian kids really made him angry. Because in his theology class, he would try to invite the kids into theological speculation. Let's explore the problem of evil. Let's explore all of these unanswerable questions. Why does God do this? Why does God allow that? And some annoying Reformed kid would raise his hand and say, for his glory. And shut the whole thing down. And he hated this. 
It's like they just so easily say it's for his glory. They don't even think about the problems involved. They don't even think about the, the philosophical conundrums and the irreconcilable problems with what has been revealed. They don't do the philosophy at all. It's like they're doing the math, but they're not showing their work. They're just saying, oh, it's for his glory. What a waste of, of theology class. And I pretended to sympathize like you do when people are suffering. But secretly, I was proud. Because those kids, whether they had earned it or not, they had something that had been drilled into them, whether they understood it or not, that all of it, the purpose behind all of it, their lives, the lives of everyone around them, the world that they were in, all of it, whether you could understand it or not or explain it or not, all of it was for the glory of God. And I hope and I pray that that annoying Reformed kids from this church will go out and spoil theology class for generations to come because it's for His glory. The greatest preacher of the ancient world was this guy named John of Constantinople. The way he became John of Constantinople is interesting. He was such a good preacher in Antioch that they decided to make him the Bishop of Constantinople. He didn't want to go. The people of Antioch didn't want him to go. They were going to riot if anybody tried to take him away. So instead, the emperor invited him to a gathering on the edge of town and kidnapped him and brought him to Constantinople. He made him the bishop. He installed him in the Hagia Sophia, the, the, the Church of Holy Wisdom in Constantinople, the first one uh, before it burned down, and uh, basically gave him the, the greatest pulpit in all of Christendom. When he preached, the emperor and his family came to sit and listen. He received every glory, every honor. In fact, John of Constantinople, you won't find uh, him by looking up that name in history. You have to look for John Chrysostom because his preaching was so magnificent that they named him uh, the Golden Mouth. So John Golden Mouth, John Chrysostom, this glorious preacher. Uh, as preachers go, he had it all. He had the fame, the acclaim. Think about it. His congregation would riot if you tried to do anything against him. Like people in the streets would riot if you went against this guy. He was so popular. Emperors had to listen to him. And they didn't like what they heard because John had a problem. Despite all of the fame and all the success, John still preached scripture. And so as a result, when emperors and, and wealthy people came into his church, they got an earful. They didn't like it. And so first, they showered him with gifts to get him to shut up. And when that didn't work, they decided to take matters into their own hands and they sent him into exile. Uh, people rioted. The church actually was burned down in the rioting, but that didn't matter. They had gotten John out of there. And then they decided they hadn't sent him far enough away, and so they sent him even farther away. And because everybody knew that, that the best thing that could happen to John Chrysostom is that he died that that's what would make the emperor the happiest. The soldiers who were sent to take him into his farthest exile decided, let's work him really hard. And so on the journey, they made him endure these hardships that, that he couldn't sustain in his health. And his health broke down. He got sick along the way. I mean, here was a man who had everything you would think that you needed in your profession and in your life to be fulfilled, to be happy. And yet all he could do was preach. All he could do was be the arrow that he'd been sent in the world to be. And as a result, he lost the fame, he lost the rewards, 
He became scorned and despised, sent into exile, uh, entrusted to jailers intentionally trying to kill him. And towards the end of that journey, as his health broke down, he realized the end had come for him. He asked to be brought into a little church, and in that church he received communion for the last time. He said goodbye to the people who were with him, and then he preached his final sermon. This preacher who was renowned for the eloquence of his sermons, the beautiful words that he spoke, his final sermon consists in translation of just seven words. I'm going to give you his whole sermon. John Chrysostom preaches these words just before he dies. In all things, glory to God. Amen. In all things, glory to God. Amen. And if that sounds to you like that story doesn't have a happy ending, then you don't know that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And woe to us if we ever imagined it was anything else. The way to live is to be in Christ, to believe in Him, to be united to Him. The way to live in Christ is to see yourself as called like He was called. To be able to say with Jesus, I am a polished arrow sent into the world for the glory of God. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.